Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. At this point in the tribulation that we're looking at, the seventh seal has been opened. Remember, the seven seals were the first series of judgments that came from God. The seventh seal marked the beginning of the second half of the tribulation. Tribulation is a period that lasts for how many years? Seven years. So at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years, the seventh seal is broken. And the seventh seal is really gives way to the seven trumpet judgments. We looked at the first four trumpet judgments a few weeks ago. And uh, they focused primarily on nature. There was the destruction of sea life, the destruction of vegetation and grass, the bitter water that came on a third of the drinking water, and, and then there was darkness. So these focused more on, on the, the nature as a whole. But then what happens is the, the eagle, you remember, flies to the, the height of the sky and he calls out in a voice. And he says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the judgment of the Lord is coming. That's at the end of chapter 8. And in, those, in his statement, he gives three woes. And the three woes that he's referring to are the last three trumpet judgments. And uh, I showed you why I, I believe that. We'll see that when we get to the, the seventh trumpet judgment as well. But for right now, you need to understand that, that the first woe is the fifth trumpet judgment. The second woe is the sixth trumpet judgment. And the third woe is the seventh trumpet judgment. And these three woeful judgments, these terrible judgments, that's what we should understand when we think of woeful these terrible judgments that are going to come are not on nature, on the sea and the grass and darkness coming on the earth. These are on people. We saw that last time when we looked at these locust-like creatures that had stings like scorpions, do you remember? And they came from where? They came from the abyss. These are demons. They're coming in the form of these little creatures and tormenting people for five months. And when people were tormented by these demonic creatures, they longed to die, but death escaped them. We saw at the beginning of chapter 9. This torture was so horrific that they wanted to die, but, but even death would not cause them to escape from this torment. And God did not allow them these demonic creatures to kill them until we get to the second woe. That's what we're going to look at this morning, the second woe, which is the sixth trumpet judgment. And now he's going to give them the death that they long for. And amazingly, the survivors respond in a negative way. We'll look at that this morning. Let me uh, invite you to look in verse 13 of chapter 9. And I'll read through verse 19. Revelation 9, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million 
I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. My goal this morning is to show you how wicked these demons are, how wicked and how powerful Satan and his demons are, and then I want to show you how gracious our God is despite their wickedness. In order to see that, we need to begin in verses 16 through 19 to see the catastrophic power within the demonic realm. The catastrophic power within the demonic realm. First, notice the size of their army in verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Literally, in the Greek, this is uh, twice 10,000 times 10,000. Okay, in other passages, you've heard that sort of phrase that, that, that there were as many angels, there were 10,000 times 10,000. But it seems as if this is, a, this is an actual number because of that last phrase in verse 16. See what he says there? John says, I heard the number of them. So it's likely that he's talking about two times 10,000 times 10,000, which is 200 million. Notice the description of these armies in verse 17. And this is how I saw in the vision of the horses those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of hyacinth, fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. These colors on the breastplates of the riders of these horses match something else. Notice further in the verse. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. So apparently the, the colors that are on the breastplates of the riders match the, the things that come out of the mouth of these horse-like creatures. And out of these horses' mouths come fire and brimstone, smoke and, and brimstone. It's, it's probably alluding to the judgment that God brings on His, uh, on his oppo- opponents, on the people who defy Him. It says there in verse 17 that their heads are like the heads of lions, probably uh, symbolic of their power, their authority, their ferocity, their ability to conquer. Notice the the power is in the horse, not the rider. All we find out about the rider is that they have a breastplate and it has these colors on it. But the horse is the thing that spits out, that spews out the fire and the brimstone and brings the death that we're going to read about. The rider simply seems to be a side note. The horse causes all the destruction. And you can see how powerful these horses are in verse 18. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues. And what were the three plagues? It was the three things that came out of the horse's mouth. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. So the power of these horses is that they can kill people. And they can kill people in large numbers. But that's not all. Their power is seen further in verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths. We saw that. 
and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The key word here in verse 19, when trying to understand what these tails are like, what these tails are, is the word like. They are like serpents. It doesn't say that these horses have serpent tails. That very well could could be the case, but it, it seems as if they simply have the power that serpents have. They're able to sting. And so if you come into the presence of these horses, you cannot get away from them because from the rear they will sting you. And perhaps they do that to stun you so that they can kill you with their fire and brimstone. These are very powerful creatures from the very pit of hell. In chapter 12, verse 9, Satan is called a serpent of old. We know Satan as a serpent, and so this is probably showing us that further, giving us further proof that these horses have demonic origin. They're not some, some, uh, just some ordinary horses. These have demonic origin. That's why perhaps he writes in there about the serpent. Their power is inescapable. And that's what it says at the end of verse 9. They do harm with them. The combination of the fire, smoke, and brimstone that comes from their mouth and the sting in their tails causes a third of mankind to be killed. Verse 18. A third of mankind to be killed. In December of 1937, Japanese troops raided, pillaged, raped, destroyed, and even killed 200,000 Chinese people. December 1937. And it said that over the next eight years, they would kill, they would murder 20 million Chinese. 20 million over an eight-year period in cold blood. It's hard to imagine how many people 20 million is. But let me try to illustrate how many that is. The city of Clawson is 2.2 square miles. If we leveled the entire city of Clawson and brought those 20 million bodies to the city of Clawson, we could lay them out end to end in their body bags. And you'd only be able to to, uh, put half of those bodies on the ground. If you wanted to put the other half on, you'd have to lay them on top of the bodies that were already there. 20 million people over eight years were killed by the Japanese. But during this time, I would suggest to you that there's going to be a lot more than 20 million people that die as a result of these demonic creatures. It will probably be closer to 1.5 billion people. And the reason I say that number is because let's just imagine that at this time in the tribulation, there are 4.5 billion people left on the earth. And if that's the case, then a third of them dying would be 1.5 billion. Now, there's no way for me to know how many people will be on the earth at that time, but I think that is a conservative number. Royal Oak is 11.8 square miles. If you wanted to bury 1.5 billion bodies, you'd have to level the entire city of Royal Oak and then dig down 22 and a half feet, the top of the ceiling, 
is 15 feet tall. 11.8 square miles with a 22.5 foot depth in order to bury 1.5 billion people. And this appears to be the same number of people that is buried that, that is killed in the first part of the tribulation. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. This is the fourth seal being broken. And when the Lamb breaks the fourth seal, the fourth living creature says, Come, and verse 8 says, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence by the wild beasts of the earth. And um, that's actually not the verse I was looking for. Um, I believe it is in there in chapter 6. So if someone finds it, just uh, let me know. It's, it's, there's a place where there it says a fourth of of mankind is killed. Um, is it verse 8? I skip over it. Yes, thank you. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence. Thank you. So what we have happening at that time, if we represent all of mankind on the earth with my four fingers, one-fourth of the earth is killed at that time leaving three-fourths of the earth, right? When we get to the second part of the tribulation, not counting all the other deaths that happen between there, we have a third of the earth now being killed. So how much do we have left? Two-fourths or one-half, right? We have half of the earth left. It is, it is utterly amazing how wicked these demons are. The number one goal of Satan and his demons is to destroy every human life. Satan doesn't want your worship primarily. Satan wants to destroy you because you are made in the image of God. And their bloodthirsty lust, their lust for blood did not start or does not start once we get to the tribulation. That lust for blood started when they fell from heaven. They want to destroy everyone who is made in the image of God. And if you can't see how they will quickly destroy all these people in just a moment's time. I mean, when, when those 20 million Chinese people were killed, it happened over an eight-year period. This will happen presumably within a few weeks or months. The stench of death will be everywhere. They hate humans and they want to kill them. And if you think that they care any more about your soul, then you are deceived. They want to destroy you as well. If you don't believe me, then I would suggest that you read Mark chapter 5 this week. Mark chapter 5. The, the story of Jesus and the demoniac. demoniac. The one who is cutting himself and, and not being able to be bound by chains because he was so strong. He had the superhuman strength. And Jesus comes to him and the legion of demons within him speak to him. And they say, what do you want with us, Jesus, Son of, Son of the Most High God? And he says, I want you to come out of them. And they said, please, don't send us to the abyss. And what does Jesus do to show how vast 
these demons are, how powerful they are, he sends them into what? Herd of swine, right? Some two or three thousand swine. To show you that the demonic world is real. It is all around us. And we don't even recognize it. And if they had their opportunity, they would destroy every single one of us. But I have good news for you. Our God has power over demons. Our God has power over demons. Look at verses 13 through 15. Before we read those verses again, look up the verse look down to verse 18 because I want you to notice what these three things are called, the, the hail, the fire, or the fire, the smoke and the brimstone. Verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. Now let's think back. This should automatically in your mind make you think back to something in the Old Testament, right? The ten plagues of Egypt. Who brought those plagues upon the earth? Who did? God. Okay, we could we could be truthful in saying that Satan brought these plagues upon the earth, and that would be true as well. But ultimately, if we back out all the way, we have to say that the plagues of Egypt were a plan of God, were they not? That God brought them on Egypt. Why? So that all of the earth would know that I am God and that there is no other. That I am the God of Israel. He wanted all to know that. So He brought these plagues upon Egypt. And I would suggest to you that the death of these, this third of mankind was ultimately brought about by the hand of God. It was a part of God's plan. And I'll tell you later why that's so important to understand. But let me let me uh, have you turn your attention to verse verses 13 and 14 because here you see God's power over demons. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound by, at the great river Euphrates. Okay, and the key word there in verse 14 is the word release. And if you look down later in verse 14, it says that they are bound. So whatever superior demonic angels are, are coming to, to bring about these armies and this death, they are until this time bound at the river Euphrates. They cannot escape. They cannot bring on this demonic death, this demonic uh uh, enactment of death until they are released. Until God, through His angel, through His ministering angel that's standing near the throne, releases these angels and says, okay, now you can go. What you should understand by this is that the demons, all demons, are, are on a leash by God. They cannot do anything that they want. They cannot take your life. They cannot torment you apart from God's desire. Apart from God's will. His permission. My New Testament professor argues that this is further proof that these are fallen angels that, that, that are um, at the four at the uh, the great river Euphrates because of the word Euphrates there. The Euphrates River in that area was a traditional location of enemies of 
of God's people in the Old Testament. And so he would say that in that area would be much wickedness. And so the fact that these angels are there is, is uh, proof that they are fallen angels, not holy angels. And so the fact that, that God is releasing them, that He has them bound, and that He is the one who gives the okay to release them, should give us great joy and hope because this shows that God has power over evil. That not a, a, the slightest bit of evil can happen apart from God allowing it. If the demons were free to do whatever they want, they could have come out at any time. They would not be bound. But they had to be freed by God and His servant angels. Look at verse 15, because your Bible says that they were prepared for this very purpose. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. In other words, God had this mass death planned before the foundation of the earth. It was included in His plan of judgment upon those who oppose Him. You see, God is not up there reacting. God is not like a big chess player, a really intuitive chess player that He's on one side, Satan's on the other side, Satan's making these incredible moves, and God's thinking 200,000 moves ahead of him. That's not what's happening. God is ahead of Satan because he planned it all. And he has power over Satan, and if he wanted to, he could put him where he pleased right now. But instead, God's allowing him to exist, to move around in our earth, along with many demons until the time of the millennial kingdom when they will be bound for 1,000 years. God has power over evil because He is God. Do you see, if He didn't have power over evil, then Satan and his demons could overpower Him. That, that over time, they could eventually get the stronghold on God. But that can't happen. Because they are all creatures. God is not. He is the Creator. He is infinite. The Scriptures are clear that God has Satan and his demons under the palm of his hand and only when he pulls it up are they allowed to do anything at all. And we know this further because of verse 15. It shows that they have limitations. Remember in the, the, fifth, pl- the fifth plague or the fifth uh, trumpet judgment? They could torment people, but they had a couple restrictions. They couldn't torment whom? The 144,000 Jews, right? They couldn't torment them. And whoever they did torment, they could only do it for a certain period of time, for five months. And after that, they weren't allowed to do it anymore. They had limitations. And they were not allowed to kill anybody at that time. Okay, see the limitations that are put on them? Here, they have a limitation as well. What is it? The end of verse 15. They were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. They had limitations. They couldn't kill all of mankind. They could only kill a third. This mass murder happens in a very short period of time. Now perhaps 
you're wondering, how could God possibly allow such evil? Let me invite you to turn to Amos chapter 4 with me. Amos chapter 4, because I think this passage will help shed some light on why God might allow this judgment to come on people. Amos chapter 4, verse 6. Because perhaps you're confused right now. I mean, Satan is evil. That's true. But what about God? If He has ultimate control over all these things, if He is the ultimate planner of all these things, then doesn't He have some responsibility over all these deaths? And I would say to you that that's a very deep question. I don't have time to give you all the answers in detail. But let me show you one reason in God's Word why He brings judgment or why He allows such evil, death of of His opposers, to come upon some people at times. And this might... I hope this will help shed some light on it. Chapter 4 of Amos, verse 6. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities. God's speaking here through His servant Amos. And lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to Me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with a scorching wind and mildew, and caterpillar was devouring in many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not Return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. See what God's trying to do here through all this devastation? He's trying to get people to understand that they need to return to Him. Come back to me. In times of favor, what do you do? You don't need me, so you turn away from me. So I bring upon you calamity. I allow Satan to to do these things to you and his demons, and yet what happens? You still do not return to me. So here's one answer of why God would allow this to happen. So that, that people who have not repented and turned in faith to Him, would turn. When they see the judgment that comes down on other people, they would say, that could be me. And they turn to God. See, one of the reasons why most people don't turn to God is because they think that God is patient and only patient. And that is true. He is patient. But eventually, God will judge, won't He? The scoffers, I think in Peter's time, were saying, oh, the the earth is existing as it does, as it always has. Nothing has ever come to those who oppose God, so we can't oppose God. And Peter said, no, that's not right. 
Did you forget about the flood? Did you forget about the worldwide catastrophic judgment that came on people? Why? So that there would be repentance. So that people would know that God is a judging God. He's not a soft, grandfatherly-like figure who just turns over and lays down like a mat. It is true. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. Turn back to chapter 9 of Revelation, please. Why would God... Let's, let's ask specifically, okay? We looked at Amos in his time. But why specifically would God allow this, this catastrophic time, this one-third of mankind to be destroyed, to be killed? Why would God allow such things? I think this will become more clear for you when you read with me verses 20 and 21. After this catastrophic event takes place, notice what happens. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, in other words, the two-thirds that remained on the earth, did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. They fail to repent. Now, you recognize that there are 144,000 Jews during this time that have already repented. And there are likely many Gentile believers that do repent. But in generally speaking, the two-thirds of the people that are left on the earth do not repent. Even though they see this catastrophic judgment and know that it's from God. Now what did they specifically not repent of? In other words, if they were, repent of, they were repentant, they would not be doing these practices. But in verses 20 and 21, we see all these things they continue to do. They continue to worship the work of their hands. They continue to worship demons. Isn't this amazing? The very demons that destroyed their own family, their, their close friends, they still worship them. They don't want to turn away from them. And that's why I say that, that even those who oppose God are the enemies of demons. The demons want to destroy them. They don't want to give any opportunity for God to change their heart because they know a changed heart will be a submitted heart to God and they don't want that. So they're happy to use people on this earth, to, to use them as long as they live, but then when the first opportunity they get, they kill them. And so I say this is an unimaginable response. The end of verse 20 says they continue to worship idols. We know from the Old Testament that idols can't save anyone. They can't protect anyone. In fact, it's the other way around. Idols actually need protection. They need salvation, don't they? Remember Dagon in the temple or, or, or in the, uh, the tent. So this gives us a window into one of the purposes of God's earthly judgment. Think about it this way. If God's desire was to simply destroy humans for opposing Him, then why not destroy all of them at this time? He, he could have allowed all of 
the, the opposers, the opponents of Him to be destroyed. But God didn't. Instead, He said only a third. And that's because God has another purpose in earthly judgments. Beside bringing retribution on His opponents, it is to give others an opportunity to repent. God desires for people to repent. And so He gives them time. Turn to chapter 16, verse 9, because it is simply amazing that these catastrophic judgments continue to come and yet people do not repent. Chapter 16, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to him, given it to scorched men with fire. So after the seventh trumpet judgment comes the seven bowl judgments. This is the fourth one. Verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the, na- they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Verse 11, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 9 and verse 11 show us clearly that they knew that these plagues were coming from God. Why? Because they blasphemed His name. How dare you bring these judgments upon us? And Even though they know it's from God, they still fail to repent. That's how wicked the human heart is. It's how depraved we are before Jesus grabs a hold of us. They refuse to bend the knee even though they have all the evidence to prove otherwise. It reminds us of Pharaoh, doesn't it? He clearly knew that God was at work here. His magicians couldn't do all these things, all these plagues that were coming on him. He knew it was God. And that's why at times you'd say, all right, you can, you can go. But then he would quickly change his mind and say, no, you can't go. And that's because our hearts are wicked and Satan and his demons seek to blind us more and more to the realities of the spiritual realm. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, this should not be something that causes you to boast. Well, I repented with a lot less evidence than they're going to have. What's their problem? This should not cause you to boast if you're a believer. It should instead humble you. It should help you to recognize that apart from God's unilateral work in your life, His one-sided work in your life, Your heart was deluded. Your heart was deceived. And you loved your sin just like I did. And we were under God's condemnation. But for some reason, for some reason of which we'll never know, God's mercy was poured on us. It should not make us proud. It should humble us. Recognizing that we were dead. We loved our sin. We opposed God. So the amazing truth that we learn in chapter 9 of Revelation is that although God allows one-third of mankind to be destroyed in a very clear way, the rest of humanity fails to repent. You would expect in these judgments that sinners would come to their knees. But like Pharaoh, they failed to repent. Listen to what Dr. Don Carson says about these last two verses. 
They have the clear evidence, but they still fail to repent. This is what Carson says. Few statements are more discouraging. What is God to do? When He maintains order and stable times, His image bearers drift away from Him, indifferent to His blessings. When instead God responds in judgment, His image bearers change or charge that God is unfair. Or they assign these things to blind circumstance or exclusively to the devil or to alien deities who need to be placated. Apart from the intervention of the convicting work of the Spirit, few reflect deeply in how these disasters are calling to us in prophetic times. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And apart from God's mercy, apart from God's love and allowing us to to come into contact with the clear revelation that He gives us in the Scriptures, we would destroy ourselves. We would be self-destructive and self-deceived. The second thing that I want you to see from this passage, I think this is very obvious, is that the demonic world is very real. The world... This age that is in many ways controlled by Satan, he's called the God of this world, small g, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's called the God of this world. He has a hold on our world system. And he uses his demons to accomplish many of his purposes. Peter understood this later on in his life. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, your enemy, your number one enemy is Satan. He is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. First opportunity he gets, he's going to take a stronghold in your life. Satan is your enemy. He's seeking to destroy you, to knock you off track, to discourage you, to cause you to give up in the middle of hard times. And our job, as I said in Sunday school, is not to attack Him, to go on the attack and to try to destroy Him and His demons and try to remove them from our realm. We can't do that. They're stronger than us. That's what Mark 5 talks about. They're wiser than us. They're quicker. They're more superior to us. Our job in Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 5 is to stand firm. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. All the problems that you have in life is not against other people. It's against the demonic realm primarily. And our job is to stand firm against the onslaught of attack that comes from Satan and his demons to try to get us off track, to discourage us, to knock us off. We have to stand. We can't give him a foothold or allow him to deceive us. I think Peter understood this very clearly because there was a time in his life when he was deceived. Bill talked about this last week in Sunday school. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, Peter was not sober. He was not vigilant. And so when he was writing 1 Peter, I imagine he was thinking back to that time when he very well could have been taken away by Satan, just like Judas was. But you know what Jesus said to him, Peter? Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have 
prayed for you. I have something special for you, Peter, that I didn't have for Judas. Because you are chosen by God. The demonic realm is very real. If God would allow them to, they would destroy you the first chance they got. And the fact that you are still alive is evidence of God's grace. It's a testament of God's mercy in your life that you are still alive. And if there is any flicker of spiritual life within you, that means that God is protecting you from Satan and his desire to sift you. That God is no match for Satan. Satan can build up all of his, the armies he wants to. He is no match for our God. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Finally, I want us to notice that God is slow to judge and quick to forgive. God is slow to judge and quick to forgive. I know this is true because of many places in Scripture where it says this. Exodus 34.6, Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 103.8, Joel 2.13, Jonah 4.2. God, You are quick to forgive and slow to judge. I also know because of the example of God's patience with the wicked Canaanites. Remember in Genesis chapter 15? God says, I'm going to make you, Israel, Abram's descendants, I'm going to make you wanderers in the wilderness or, or in a land that's not your own. Eventually it would be Egypt. I'm going to make that happen for you for 400 years. Why? Because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. The sin of the Canaanites. You see, God could have immediately destroyed Canaan and all those wicked people opposed him. But God's saying, no, I want to give them time. How much time does He give them? At least four generations before He finally destroys these people through Joshua. If you have not repented and you sit under the sound of My voice, God is being patient with you as well. Do you see? He's given you an opportunity to repent. It's true. God is long-suffering, but His patience will not last forever. Listen to 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And he goes on to talk about what's going to happen to the destruction of the earth. So he's saying... God is, is patient. It's true. God is patient. He's slow about His promise. He, he doesn't want to destroy everybody. He wants everybody to come to repentance. But there will come a day when He sends Christ like a thief in the night, night and, and the entire earth will be destroyed. And I can tell you that once the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out, the opportunity to repent will be over. There are no, no opportunity to repent in the life to come. At this point in chapter 9 in the tribulation, the judgments of God are not over. And so people still have an opportunity to repent. And I believe that's why He allowed these deaths to happen so that others could repent. You see, God's judgment has, His earthly judgment has a purpose. It is to bring retribution to those who oppose Him, but it's also an opportunity for others to repent. Will you take the opportunity today if you have not done it already? Because Satan 
and his demons want to destroy you. But God wants you to come to repentance. What an amazing God we serve. Christian, you should be amazed at God's grace that He didn't sift you. He didn't allow Satan to sift you like wheat. That He protected you from Satan and his demons. And that God is protecting you every second of every day. He's always thinking about you. He's always showing His love to you. Do you recognize that? Or do you feel like you're being punished by God? Because that punishment has already been taken on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to bear that punishment. So if you feel like God is bringing retribution, you don't understand who God is. What an amazing God we serve. Let's pray. Father, Anytime we talk about the demonic realm, it's easy to get too deep into it in a way that would not be helpful. We understand from Your Word that our, desire, our need is not to find out more about the demonic realm, but really it is to be able to learn more about the Scriptures and how to stand firm in the day of temptation. And we know that You always give us a way of escape. There's so many temptations that come our way. Satan's with his world system that he's set up. He's using it to help mold our hearts in a way that he wants them to go. And we are ashamed to say that we often follow our own hearts instead of following your word. Pray that your word would be at the center of what we, we do that we would recognize the grace and the mercy that You've shown to us. We did not deserve it. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited, undeserved favor. The very least that we could do is that we could offer ourselves as living sacrifices to You. Help us, O Father, we pray. We don't even recognize many times how much You protect us, how much You spare us from the torment of demons. Pray that You'd help us to rest more firmly on You, to trust more fully in You, to to put our faith completely in You and to hold nothing back. We need You. Every hour we need You. Help us, O Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.